Verse 11 of chapter 48 tells us Moab has been at ease since his youth. He's also been undisturbed like wine on its dregs. And he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor, and his aroma has not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send to him those who tip vessels, and they will tip him over, and they will empty his vessels and shatter his jars. Father, may we learn by application from this prophecy this morning. May we gain some understanding and glean some wisdom. And may we hear and know what you're about in our lives, Father. Give us hearts to respond to you in action, in deed, and not only in word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you may recall the old commercial from the late 1970s featuring Orson Welles sitting at a wine chateau in probably Northern California. In the background, soft piano music is playing and there are men in really ugly leisure suits. <laughs> women with Farrah Fawcett hair, you know, sticking out. And, and they're lightly socializing and, and lightly laughing and talking and sipping wine in the background. And Orson Welles, in his famous baritone, intoned about America's most popular wine at the time, Chablis. And he said, it's light and crisp, it's delicious. The wine you drink, the most should be the best. And the commercial ended with that classic line, Paul the Son will sell no wine before it's time. (laughs) Of course, the opposite is what comedian Stephen Wright once said. He said, I made wine out of raisins so I wouldn't have to wait for it to age. (laughs) Yet another way of making wine, good wine, the best wine, would be just to invite Jesus to the party. John chapter 2 verse 1 tells us on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, and I'm convinced he said it this way, woman, what does that have to do with us? No, he probably didn't say it exactly like that. My hour has not yet come, he says. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, we can theologize all kinds of meanings about Jesus' first miracle. Why he did what he did, the kind of wine it actually was, the kindness of Jesus in sparing this couple from the embarrassment of running out of wine. And we can talk about the implications of the blood of Christ pictured in wine. We can talk about the the idea of the joy of the kingdom that's kind of spoken of or, or indicated in this first miracle. The bottom line is... Je- bottom, the bottom line... 
I didn't even think that. The bottom line is Jesus knows how to make good wine. What I want us to think about this morning, and the picture we're given in Jeremiah 48 with Moab, is the process. The process of making good wine. What it takes to produce the best bouquet, the richest flavor, the best wine. Jesus is the master wine maker. And He will glorify no person before His time. 2,600 years ago, there was a simple method to preserving wine so that it would last long and taste its best. First, the grapes were stomped, smashed, crushed. They would run down a little channel. All the juice and and the the little bits and pieces of grape would run down a channel. They would collect it in vessels or containers. And they would set it aside for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, when the sediment, which is called the dregs or the lees, would kind of settle down to the bottom, they would take that vessel or container and pour it into another vessel or container where it would sit for another 40 days. They would do this up to seven times, each time sifting out, each time pouring out the good wine and leaving the lees or the dregs behind to make this process work out, to bring out the best flavor in the wine. But if you let the wine sit too long... It took on the sourness of the dregs. The dregs would sit there and they would get thick on the bottom of the container and then they would begin to impact the taste and the flavor of the wine. That's the trouble with Moab. That's the problem with the Moabite people. What is that? It's an Amber Alert. On a phone? Wow. Well, somebody take care of that. <laughs> like, what, is the wine done? What? <laughs> Moab is the picture of an undisturbed life. Imagine getting the best grapes in the land and pouring them into a vessel and setting the vessel aside and just leaving it there. And no winemaker would do that. You don't just leave it alone. Because you end up with something that is undrinkable, something that's bitter and sour and thick. And Moab was like that. Moab was across from the Dead Sea, directly across from the Dead Sea. They're from Israel. Uh, it's the midsection of Jordan today. And for centuries, up to Jeremiah, they had largely been left alone off the radar, kind of a Middle Eastern Switzerland. <laughs> you know, a country unto their own. Their cousins, the Israelites, by contrast, were pummeled over the years. Isn't it interesting that in Israel's experience in the land the first time around, and even after their return, and even now in modern day Israel, they are constantly being pummeled. They're constantly under threat, constantly under attack. There were only a few years ever where the Jewish people really knew peace, and that was under Solomon. After that, when the kingdom divided, again, the attacks began to come in from all the neighboring nations. They had to fight. They had to earn and protect and keep what God had given to them. The whole book of Joshua is that lesson for us. I want you to come into the promised land, the land that I promised you, but you're going to have to fight for it. Well, why, Lord? Because I want you to know how to keep it. I want you strong to keep it. Judges chapter 3, verse 1, we read on Wednesday night. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who did not or had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords or cities of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Zidonians, the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamat. 
They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which He had commanded their fathers through Moses. That was life for Israel. Testing and proving and protecting and keeping the land and fighting for what was theirs. But life for the Moabites was very different. Again, right across the sea from them, the Dead Sea, they just hung out. They were an ancient people. They were settled. They were sedentary. They had been around a long time. Genesis 19 tells the story of their ancestry. Verse 32 through 38 tells about Lot and his daughters. And how Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed and Lot and his daughters and his wife fled. Lot's wife became table salt and he and his daughters headed on to Zoar. But from Zoar, Lot was too frightened to stay in the city. And so he took his daughters and they went up and they lived in the mountains above Zoar, up in a cave, out there secluded and alone. And the daughters began to say, you know, clock's ticking. And there are no men around here and we really need to protect and preserve and continue the family line. So they stupidly think, let's get dad drunk and take care of business. And so they got dad drunk and the oldest goes into dad and and spends the night with him and she becomes pregnant. The next night the youngest one goes into dad, becomes pregnant. The oldest one has a son. She names his son Moab. The youngest one has a son. She names his son Ben-Ami who became the father of the Ammonites. So the Moabites, direct descendants of Lot. The Ammonites, direct descendants of Lot. A nephew of Abraham. So cousins, literally, of the Israelites. But ever since that drunkenness of Lot, the wine of Moab sat relatively still. Not poured from vessel to vessel. As we're told in verse 11, Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed like wine on its dregs, and he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore he retains his flavor, and his aroma has not changed. And I put to you that the aroma is not good. Like wine on its dregs. And again, you wouldn't want to drink the dregs. They were at first thick and syrupy, but very quickly they became sour and bitter. Just try this. Smash some grapes on your counter, leave them out for a few weeks, and go eat them. See how they taste. They go sour quickly. And while the wine, wine in the Bible is always a picture of joy, a picture of celebration, but the dregs speak of judgment. When we hear about the dregs, the lees, that sedimentary goo at the bottom of the wine barrel in the Bible, the Lord points to judgment. Psalm 75, verse 8, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. When we studied through Psalms, I, I didn't see this the first time around. A lot of things I didn't see the first time around. The fact that in Psalm 75, 8, the cup was in the hand of the Lord. The wine foams. It's well mixed. That should be good wine. But those who are the wicked of the earth will never drink the good wine. They will only drink the dregs. They will only drain down the judgment at the bottom of the glass, at the bottom of the barrel. Isaiah 51, verse 17, Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of His anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. And again, the judgment of the Lord seen in the dregs at the bottom. Zephaniah 1.12 The prophet said, It will come about at this time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, those who are left unsettled or settled and undisturbed 
Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Boy, there's a philosophy going around our country right now. The Lord will not do good or evil. The Lord's insignificant. The Lord has nothing really to do with anything that's going on. He says, moreover, their wealth will become plunder. Their houses will become desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. The prophecy of Zephaniah that was fulfilled again in the falling of Jerusalem. These are the complacent. These are those who sit back on their laurels and there is judgment. Moab was a nation, as we talked about this week, a nation of achievers who had become arrogant. And that's what achievement can do, lead directly into arrogance. The Moabites were settled in their self-satisfaction. Again, not unlike our country today. We've seen so many parallels in the judgments of Jeremiah. Moab had amassed wealth and treasure, and so they believed that no harm could come to them. They believed that they were protected from everything going on. They believed that they were a country unto themselves and that the rest of the world would pretty much leave them alone. They could go out and they could make attack on other countries, other nations, be involved in other wars, but the homeland was safe. The homeland felt safe until 9-11. Now the homeland doesn't feel so safe anymore. Even in World War II, when Pearl Harbor was hit, most people on the mainland of America could look across and say, at least it was out in the Pacific. At least it wasn't right here. And this mentality and the amassing of wealth, no country in the history of the world has been wealthier than America. And yet our debt to GDP just came out this week as 105%. It's not good. We've settled. We've settled back. I want to read you a few statistics and I want to give you kind of a heads up on these because uh, there's no judgment here as I read these. I I recognize there are a few things here that that may make some of us feel uncomfortable. Uh, But these are cold, hard statistics. Taken together, they paint a larger picture. Brian sent this to me a couple of weeks back from a source called the Economic Collapse Blog, which sounds very encouraging and positive. The Economic Collapse blog. And all of these statistics are verifiable. They're all put together on the blog, but they're all uh, referenced. You can tap on each one and find where he got them, and, and all of them have legitimate sources. Let me just read through this for you to have a sense of where our country is, having settled back undisturbed on the dregs. Suicide has now surpassed car accidents as the number one cause of injury death in the United States. More U.S. soldiers killed themselves than were killed in combat last year. Americans will spend more than $280 billion in 2013 on prescription drugs. Nearly one out of every four women in the United States are taking antidepressants. The percentage of women taking antidepressants in the United States is higher than any other country in the world. In 2010, the average teenager in the United States was taking 1.2 central nervous system drugs. That is drugs uh, which treat conditions such as ADHD and depression. That's the average teen. Um, Children in the United States are three times more likely to be prescribed antidepressants than those in Europe. Fully one-third of the nation's employees suffer chronic, debilitating stress. And more than half of all millennials, that is people born who are right now 18 to 33 years old, 
More than half experience a level of stress that keeps them awake at night, including large numbers diagnosed with depression or anxiety disorder. And I was thinking about that, 18 to 33, I don't think I started growing up until I hit 40. (laughs) In the United States today, there are about 28 million Americans with a drinking problem and about 22 million Americans using illegal drugs. More people have been diagnosed with mental disorders in the United States of America than anywhere else on earth. The number of Americans on food stamps grew from 17 million in the year 2000 to over 47 million today. Of all the major industrialized nations, America is the most obese. Mexico is second. In 1962... 13% of all Americans were considered obese. Today, that uh, number has risen to 36%. The U.S. is tied with the U.K. for the highest average of hours spent watching television each week. The United States has the highest divorce rate in the world by good margin. The United States has the highest percentage of one-person households on the entire planet. According to the Pew Research Center, only 51% of all American adults are currently married. In 1960, that was 72%. Approximately one out of every three children in America live in a home without a father. One out of three. That's stunning to me. For American women... Under the age of 30, more than half of all babies are being born out of wedlock. The United States has the highest child abuse mortality rate in the developed world. In the United States, an estimated one of every four girls has been sexually abused before they reach adulthood. The U.S. has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the world, again, by a wide margin. The U.S. produces more pornography than any other nation in the world. America can now boast 20 million new STD infections every single year. And America has the highest sexually transmitted disease uh, infection rate in the entire industrialized world. One out of every four teenage girls in America has at least one sexually transmitted disease. The United States leads the world in eating disorder deaths. We're talking about anorexia, bulimia. Nobody in the world gets more plastic surgery done than Americans do. Americans spend more time sitting in traffic than anyone else in the world. Which I think is one of our worst problems. (laughs) Not really sure why that's on the list other than it goes to our stress. And America has the highest incarceration rate and the largest total prison population in the world by a wide wide margin. No wonder our country is stressed. See, any one of those statistics by itself you can take and make a crusade out of. But when you put them all together, what you get is a picture of a country in despair. And you know where despair comes from? Sitting back on the dregs. It comes from the settled life. It comes from the life that everybody thinks that's the life we want. We want it all to be taken care of, the work to be done, so we can settle back. Let me tell you something. The work that has to be done to get the building built on Troxel Road, that is nothing compared to the work that has to be done once we're in. And the work that we're called to right now, we are not called to settle back. Because the more settled we become, the more useless we become. We become, as my dad used to say, fat, dumb, and happy. But we're not really happy. 
We're stressed. We're worried. We're despairing. The country seems to be coming unhinged, not unlike Moab. Therefore, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send to him those who tip vessels. And they will tip him over, and they will empty his vessels and shatter his jars. America is getting tipped. America is spilling. Jars are becoming shattered. Lives are getting poured. Now for all of that, it may surprise you to discover how much God loves Moab. I think the biggest surprise to me in reading through the judgments that we studied over this last week of of nine different judgments for ten nations across five chapters. And in these judgments, you begin to hear the heart of the Lord. Listen to what He says to Moab in verse 31 of chapter 48. Therefore I will wail for Moab. Even for all Moab, I will cry out. I will moan for the men of Kir Hares. Verse 32, more than the weeping of Hatzer, I will weep for you, O vine of Sibna. He says, your tendrils stretched across the sea. They reached to the sea of Hatzer. Upon your summer fruits and your grape harvest, the destroyer has fallen, he says. God loves Moab. God's passion was for Moab. Moab has the largest, the longest judgment of any nation with the exception of Babylon here at the end of Jeremiah. Moab sitting back, settled on the dregs. And God says, this judgment's coming, I'm tipping you over, and it's breaking my heart. I'm weeping for you. And speaking of the love of God for Moab, look down at verse 47, how the judgment ends. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. What? I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to revitalize your land. Do you realize in the millennial kingdom there will be people living happily in Moab and the land will be beautiful once again? It's not beautiful now. I've driven through it. It's not nice to look at. Desolate and dry. A little better than southern Jordan, which is Edom, the midsection of Jordan. It starts to get a little better, not much. And you get to Amman and it's a little bit better. But that's a desolate country. God says, yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab. But when the judgment comes, Moab had become corrupt and thick and sour as their own achievements settle. So does that mean we don't try to achieve anything? Not for yourself. Not for myself. Because what we have found in America is that self-achievement takes you to a certain place, but you arrive there and eventually you go, if it's for yourself, you say, what was it for? This is it? This is all I get? The purest, sweetest motivation for achievement, listen, is glorifying God. You're going to do any great thing in the world, do it for God. Do it for Jesus. Do something that matters for Him. But back to the process. To become flavorful for His purpose, to become useful for His design, the master winemaker has got to pour us out. We've got to be poured, as it were, from vessel to vessel. Think this through. What is your legacy? What are you leaving behind? A vast empire? (laughs) Investments? Are you leaving behind a generation of kids following in their father's footsteps? What's your legacy in this world? What are you doing that's going to last forever? Jeremiah's legacy can still be tasted. We have spent the last several months drinking of the wine of Jeremiah, and it's a good wine. 
we have been learning from the fruits of his labors, of his pouring. This is a man whose life was a life of sorrow, whose life was hard, whose life was bitter, whose life was difficult. But he clung to the Lord, and for that, this is a man with a phenomenal legacy. A man who made a difference in the world and for eternity because he was willing to be poured out and to become flavorful for the Lord. We've got to be poured out. We have got to be emptied of ourselves. Paul understood that. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to the zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is by the law, I was found blameless. How many of you can say that? And yet Paul says, I had it all going on. All the laws kept. My religious track record was spotless. Now, that was from a human perspective, granted. But he was a Jew among Jews. And yet Paul says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is one of the greatest testimonies of the truth of Jesus of anybody in history because he had the perfect, the ideal life from a human perspective and it went into the garbage bin when he turned to Christ. He threw it all away. He gave it all up. Paul's loss were his lees, his dregs. He realized all of that settled stuff in the vessel needed to be gone. He didn't want it anymore. All the achievement of his life was worthless when compared to Christ. They were sour, bitter sediment. And he left it all to be poured out for Jesus Christ. Let me just read this to you. This is his word in 2 Corinthians 11.22. A little more sense of, of what happened in Paul's life. He said, I speak in foolishness. But he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? (laughs) I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times, gang. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. In other words, the ship went down and Paul spent, what, 72 hours floating in the sea. Anyone here ever gone through that kind of experience? He goes on and he says, I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. He says, who is weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Picture of a man poured out. A life from vessel to vessel to vessel. I'll tell you what, there was no time from the moment Paul gave his life to Jesus, there was no time for him to settle back on the lease. There was no time for the dregs of his achievements to sour the wine of the joy of Christ. 
And in all this, Paul draws a beautiful connection. He, 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 it's like the Lord gives him a picture for his own life. He says in Philippians 2.17, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I'm a drink offering. I get it, Lord. That's my life. To be a drink offering. What is that exactly? Leviticus 23 verse 13 tells us that a drink offering was a fourth of a hen of wine. That is a gallon, roughly. And the Jewish people would bring a gallon of wine and would pour it out either next to or upon the altar. It's a little vague as to which way it went. But it was poured out And according to Leviticus 23 and Numbers 15, every blood sacrifice offered was also offered with a drink offering. So you bring in the the young pigeons if you were impoverished. You still had to have the gallon of wine. You would bring in the lamb for a sacrifice or the ram. You still had, or the ox. You still have to have the gallon of wine. And you would pour out the drink offering along with the meat offering. And we need to understand something here. This is absolutely critical to get. Wine in the Bible not only symbolizes joy, it symbolizes rest. Rest. Leviticus 23, throughout the whole chapter, connects the drink offerings to Sabbath. Connects the drink offerings to Passover. And various other passages throughout the Hebrew Scriptures link wine not only to joy and celebration, but also to rest. Just rest in peace. But in the drink offering, what's interesting to me is the good wine was poured out. They poured out the rest. This picture of rest and peace in the Lord is is now poured out. Just like the judgment on Moab, the vessels are tipped. The joy and the rest are gone. We would almost say, wasted. Are you kidding me, Lord? A gallon of good wine? I mean, you want me to pour out my palmasan? <laughs> the gallo? That's what I'll do. It's a drink offering. So I'm going to go down to the local 7-Eleven and buy the cheap wine because it's a whole gallon, you know. They're supposed to pour out the best wine in this offering. The symbol of their joy, the symbol of their rest, pouring it out on the ground, pouring it out on the altar. And that's what happened to Moab. Verse 33 says, So gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field, even from the land of Moab, and I have made the wine to cease in the wine presses. No one will tread them with shouting. The shouting will not be shouts of joy. Moab pursues the good life. And they end up in judgment, poured out and empty, and all they have left is a bad hangover. Look at verse 26 of chapter 48. Make him drunk, for he has become arrogant toward the Lord, so Moab will wallow in his vomit, and he also will become a laughing stock. Picture of a drunk. Picture someone the next morning stained in their own vomit because they got too drunk and now they're hungover, and that's Moab. And all they had was a settled life. Great achievement, amass great wealth, sit back in it and enjoy it. And God says, you're being tipped. You're going over. What are you driving at here, Rick? I want you to think about this. The wine of joy and rest was lost from Moab because it had never been processed. They had never gone through the tipping that Israel had gone through. 
They had never been emptied. But listen to this. The, the wine of the drink offering, which also symbolizes joy and rest, was poured out by Israel. And there's a picture there. The implication was that Israel, in pouring out the drink offerings, was not getting their full rest. They were losing some of it. It's being poured out. And so the rest is not quite there. For Moab it was judgment, but the drink offering for Israel looked forward to a rest that they didn't quite yet have. A rest that was poured out now to be experienced then. Hebrews 4.9 says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. They have not yet entered it. You would pour out the drink offering, the picture of joy and rest, and you think, now wait a minute, why am I pouring this out as opposed to drinking it? You know, if I drank the drink offering, that would make sense. Well, I get the joy, and I get the rest in the Lord. And the Lord said, no, pour it out. Why, Lord? Because you're not quite there. Because you can keep the law like Paul perfectly. You can keep all of my rules and my commandments, but you still are lacking. You are still going to empty out the vessel. You're still going to be left without. Without the rest that you long for. Don't miss this. A life poured out is a life that dispenses with the world's idea of ease and joy. A life poured out says, I may not fully experience rest here, physically speaking. I'm going to be poured out here for the rest then. I'm going to be poured out here for the peace to come. But Rick, we know that you know as believers we get peace now. Yeah, I'm not saying we don't. I'm talking about something else here. I'm talking about the fact that I think maybe we as believers are too concerned with peace and rest right now. And not enough concerned with being poured out for the work of the Lord. We look to the fulfillment of promised rest. Let me ask you this question. What's your pleasure? What do you have? What would you like to have poured? Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And Jim Crouch pointed this out to me a couple of years back. I thought it was brilliant. He said, you know what happens with the drink offering? If it's poured on the altar, it evaporates. It's gone. My life is a drink offering. That means as I'm being poured out, all that stuff that was so important, so precious, so valuable to me, my vacation, my funds, my home, my family, all these things, it evaporates in significance until all that's left is the Lord. And I think we're getting somewhere. You might say, so Rick, are you saying we give up peace and joy and rest and happiness? Are you trying to sell us some of that old-time religion? You want us to become puritanical, pew-sitting, praiseless, joyless, lifeless automatons? Yeah, that's what I want. (laughs) Come on. It's not what this is about at all. That sounds like the dregs. No, God pours out the natural man's idea of ease and joy so that He might pour into the spiritual man something far better than wine, something that is dregs-free, and that is His Spirit. And that's why I believe Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The picture is awesome. The picture is perfect. You can fill yourself up with wine 
and be at ease for a time. And it wears off and goes away until the next time you fill yourself up with wine again. Or you can be filled with the Spirit. And something completely different begins to happen to you in your life. And please don't don't simplify this too much. This whole idea of being filled with the Spirit and not getting drunk with wine is not just about drinking here. It's about the process. We were down at um, Calvary South End last night. Cheryl and I went down. They were doing a Beatles concert. It was great. Um, just doing all Beatles music and then did this presentation, a video on John Lennon's life and talked about his, uh, his interest in Christianity, things he said about it. Fascinating stuff. And in part, I was talking with Brett Williams down there last night, the pastor down at South End, and Brett said, you know, I, I just saw an interview with Paul McCartney and David Frost just about a year ago. Uh, this interview was done. And he was talking about Linda McCartney's death. She died by cancer. And he was saying, I really have trouble believing in God because of the pain of her death, because of how awful it was. And he said, so I just can't go there. I just don't think about it. I just won't deal with it. And an awful lot of people look at the pain and the hardship of our lives. Christians, we become debilitated by the hard stuff of our lives and we miss what's happening. And what is that, Rick? The process. We are in process for something so much greater than this life. But if we pursue the ease and the joy and the rest and the success and the achievement of this life, we will miss the process. And then when the bad stuff does happen and the hard things hit, when we get tipped over, when our vessels are shattered, we go, I can't believe in a God like that. Or why, God, would you do this to me? And the Lord says, you're in process. I'm draining out the dregs here. Can you see that being poured out, yes, it can be painful. Yes, it can be hurtful. Yes, it can be difficult. But don't you realize you're just getting poured from one vessel to the next so that you can be ready when the time comes to be the pure drink that I have prepared you to be. Paul's saying, what's your pleasure? What do you have? Momentary ease, a fleeting buzz of joy and undisturbed life? Or do you want more? You see, Jesus is into disturbing people's lives. Be careful. You let Him in, He's going to mess you up. (laughs) You invite Jesus to begin really working and it will be hard. I told Cheryl last night, the last ten years of our life, we've gotten to live in a beautiful home on a beautiful island with great people, So many wonderful blessings, and it has been the hardest ten years of my life. I think back to living in Anaheim, California, of all places. If you're from Anaheim, no offense, but it's not my favorite place. It's concrete and heat and smog and traffic. People throwing things at you, but that's another story. Anaheim. And yet, when I think back to our life in Anaheim, it was easy. It was fun. We ran around with our buds. We hung out. We had great times. I was in youth ministry, so I was always out doing fun stuff, you know? And we come up here, and we finally realize the dream of of, of living in a beautiful place. And it is hard. Not right now. Good right now. But, But ten years of a harder existence. And I'm convinced it's because ten years ago we said, all right, Lord, what do you want to do? 
Are you um, willing to drink the drink that I'm going to drink? Oh yeah, Lord. Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? Absolutely, Lord. Pour out. You know how easy it is to sing about being poured out and emptied? We sang Empty Me this morning. Empty me. Empty me. And Phil, won't you fill me with you? With you? That's easy to sing. It is hard to experience. It hurts. It can be painful. But in all of that, there is something amazing that's taking place. We find ourselves longing for more pouring out. We find ourselves from vessel to vessel entering into a process that God wants for us, for you. It's called sanctification. Where you're being poured into something different. As we see in Paul, among other examples, the pouring ain't easy and it's always disturbing. But without it, like Moab... Look at what he says. They have retained. They have retained their flavor. Their aroma has not changed. I challenge any one of you to just stop showering for a while. And during that time, please attend Living Word or Christ the King or wherever you'd like to attend other than here. See what happens when you stop getting cleaned up. You will retain your flavor. <laughs> and your aroma will not change. <laughs> you know what the natural man's aroma is? It stinks like sin. And it smells like death. It tastes like rotting things. 2 Corinthians 4.7 Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed. And I read that and I think, is that me? We're perplexed but not despairing. We're persecuted but not forsaken. We're struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For momentary light affliction is producing for us the eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen. If there's any one lesson I've learned from Jeremiah, that's it. Stop looking at the things that are seen and start looking to what is unseen. You know what the building is? The building is going to be something seen. Why engage in that process? That we might be involved in what is unseen. The work of the Spirit in the life of people. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen, those are eternal. Don't settle in the lease. Don't kick back in the dregs. Think about this. We don't always see the dregs of our sedentary lives. The master winemaker does. If you went and visited a winery and looked into the barrel, you might not recognize the leaves building up at the bottom, but the winemaker knows. And the winemaker understands after 40 days, I've got to tip this thing over. I've got to pour into another vessel because the leaves are settling. The dregs are starting to thicken. The master winemaker, Jesus Christ, recognizes the dregs in my life long before I do. And he tips me out. He pours me out. He says, Rick, it's pouring time. 
in a classic missionary book about Hudson Taylor. It's called Hudson Taylor in the Early Years. There's a chapter that deals with this whole concept. And the title of the chapter I found interesting. It's Emptied from Vessel to Vessel. Talks about Hudson Taylor's second year in China and how desperate that year was and how nothing worked and how all of his efforts seemed for naught and how painful and difficult it was on Hudson Taylor in that second year. And yet, he was being emptied from vessel to vessel for greater things. And it may seem to you in your life, you follow Christ, I've given my life to the Lord, but now I'm going from one difficulty to the next, one vessel to the next. And for you it may be disease. Or it may be family tragedy. Or it may be some kind of a heartache, some kind of a relationship struggle. But as we are emptied from vessel to vessel, I am being poured out. And the more I am being poured out, the more I want to be poured out for His sake. The more I'm being sacrificed, the more I want to sacrifice what was so important to me before, I want to sacrifice it for the kingdom, for Jesus. And the more I'm poured out for His sake, the more He is poured in for my sake. Turn over to Matthew 26. On the night He was betrayed, Jesus poured out wine to share with His apostles. And when He came to what we believe was the fourth cup of the Seder meal, the Passover Seder, the cup of redemption, Jesus said in verse 27, when He had taken the cup and given thanks, He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he never had another sip of wine. Someone might know, well, wasn't he offered sour wine on the cross? No, he was offered a vinegar drink and it wasn't wine. If your Bible says sour wine, it's not what it was. He never drank wine again. Directly from there, he goes over to the Mount of Olives and he chose to drink from a different cup. Not the cup of ease, but the cup of excruciating pain. Not the cup of peace, but the cup of piercing. Jesus Jesus drank the dregs for our salvation. Jesus drank the full total weight of the judgment of God in full for me to be saved, for my sin. Look at verse 39. Skip down. He went a little beyond them and He fell on His face and He prayed saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Yet not as I will, but as You will. And in verse 42, He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Your will be done. And we're told in a third time, verse 44, He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Three times He said, Father, take this cup. Father, if there's any other way than me drinking this cup, Father, let this cup pass from me. And in His crucifixion, by His decision, the pure, perfect, crystal clear wine of His blood was poured out. Jesus became our drink offering at the altar of Calvary. Jesus, why did You do it? Hebrews 12, verse 2 tells us, for the joy set before Him. Now don't miss this. For the joy set before Him, that is the test 
That's the test. Do you see joy in the pouring of your life? You know you're in tune with the Lord if even in the pouring there's joy. When the tough stuff hits, we'll respond in one of two ways. We'll either say, poor me, or we'll say, poor me. Pour me, Lord. Pour me out. If this is for your benefit, if this is for your kingdom, we will either be whiners (laughs) or we will become fine wine as we're poured from vessel to vessel seven times. Seven times the number of completion by Jesus who is the finisher of our faith. I don't mean to be negative, my friends, but I really think our our country is tipping over. I think we're going the way of Moab. I think we've been at ease for 200 years. I think we've amassed great wealth. And we've gotten ourselves to a point where it's the tipping has happened. It's begun. And I don't know where that's going to end historically for America. I know we're not mentioned in any end time scenario that I can really pull out in Scripture. And so America is being tipped. I believe the church worldwide is being poured. I believe that we're being poured from jar to jar. We're being prepared at the turning of these days. And I know, I know our fellowship is being prepared. I know there's tipping going on in our fellowship right now. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of heartache. There's disease that we're praying through. There's difficulty. There's financial struggle. And in this season... And our leadership has recognized this. There's just a lot of people hurting. This is why we keep inviting you, by the way, every Thursday night we keep inviting you, not this Thursday because that's just for the shepherds, but every other Thursday night. (laughs) Please come pray. Whether it's for yourself or someone else. That's where the healing is going to come. That's where the power is going to come. That's where the anointing comes. That's where our hope will be found is in our communion and conversation with Jesus. But all this going on right now, we are, we are being prepared. And Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. This is the perfect pouring process of the master winemaker. Lord, pour us out that we might receive the outpouring of Your Spirit. Lord, sift and pour out the dregs of our sin. Pour out the lees of the lies of this world even that we as the church have bought into. Disturb our lives, Father. To bring us into that sense of rest and joy and peace of Your Spirit. Use us, Lord Jesus, for the sake of Your Kingdom. And if we must be like Paul poured out as drink offerings, evaporating in terms of ourselves, diminishing that the the glory of Christ might increase, then Father, we pray in Your perfect wisdom and timing, bring it on. Pour us out. And I ask, Father, with all sincerity that this fellowship might be used by You for Your kingdom in ways that will only honor and glorify You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.